Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue. So happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Adi Joseph, who is my former editor at the Sporting News and is now the deputy editor for The Win. And he is on to do the monthly Tears podcast. I try to have the first episode of every month be the Tears podcast. And I gave Adi a very basic instruction in terms of what we were what we we're going to do. And he took it in a different way than everybody else. So that led to a different podcast. And I think you'll really enjoy it. And I will leave that surprise, if you will, for the show itself. This week's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service. You can go to www.blueapron.com slash real GM to get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. And our old friends at Audible. You go to www.audible.com slash try now for a free trial subscription. It's a great audiobook and so many other things service. And so you can try it out and you get a free audiobook as well with that. So this episode runs, I think it's like an hour 15. Really enjoyed it. Go through that and then also do a little bit on the trade deadline towards the end. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me as always. I do this uh, a weekly or monthly, sorry, Tears podcast for Real Jam Radio, and I reached out to you because you and I actually did a Tears podcast before I made this monthly feature. You came on, and that was a lot of fun, and so I thought you'd be a good person to talk with. And I didn't give you much in direction, and I actually thought that the way that you approached it was different from how I usually do it. And instead of explaining it myself, do you want to just say how you did it? Yeah, I tried to basically take it the whole league, all 30 teams, and break them down into sort of like a bell curve type shape, judging on a curve based on how relevant they are. So, you know, there's only one team that might give it away in tier one. There's only one team in tier eight. And then there's a lot of teams in tier five and tier. I think that that's just the way the NBA actually works is that you have a really small group at the very top and a really small group at the very bottom. And this season in particular, a huge group in the middle and, uh, the whole notion that like, you know, there's there's this almost every team is fighting for playoff contention and yet very few are fighting for even being serious conference final contenders um, is, is pretty in- interesting this year. It is. And were you, were you thinking when you were separating these out, was it more about like ceiling or eventual spot? Because I know there are teams that are a real challenge for that, like the Clippers are a great example of this, where they're not very good right now because they're missing Chris Paul, but they'll be better in the playoffs. Oh, they've been exceeding expectations for me. I would say that you're yes, I'm I'm, you know, when I'm when I'm talking about the Clippers, I'm always going to talk about the context of the player who's, you know, missing time for a reason that it shouldn't kill his his season or anything, but you know, I will say this, they're 2 and 4, but those two wins were against good teams. You know, when you're beating the Thunder and and the Hawks without Chris Paul, it's pretty impressive. They've had a tough stretch, but it's actually going to continue to be hard for most of this month. But when when Paul's back, they're still going to be fine, and I'm not worried about the Clippers long-term, other than just the fact that they're the Clippers, and something always happens. That's true. Uh, so given your structure, I decided to think about it in, in a pretty similar way with that, and it was fun because I've done so many of these from a conference perspective to go the other direction and just think about it with the league as a whole, and might as well go top to bottom. It's a little bit more fun that way and gets gets some of the sizzle sizzle a little bit earlier in the podcast, which is always good. And the basic question at the very top, which is actually the same question if we were going to be doing this conference by conference, is are the Warriors by themselves? I think the Warriors are absolutely by themselves. It's not only that I've thought the Warriors were by themselves all season long, but it's also that 
they're nine and one in their last ten, as the Cavs and the Spurs are not, and and the Cavs in particular are obviously struggling basically since the turn of the month. The Spurs are doing okay, you know, plugging along, gonna have the second best record in the West, but. It's just so clear to me that the the Warriors are the best team in the NBA and that point differential, everything is lining up in their favor this year. It's not like it was last year where the Spurs, though they had a few more losses, had a really, really great, historically great defense and, and great team and could have made the argument that the Spurs were just as good or better. This year, I think you can't make any argument. The Warriors are the best team. Before the last couple of weeks, it was probably a more interesting argument to talk about regular season. You know, did a team really have a chance to upset them? But now that I think that argument is not over, but it's functionally over. You know, it's the barring the unforeseen part of it. You know, there there is still a circumstance that you could create where the Warriors don't have the best record in the league, but it's it's improbable. Back and when Kevin I, Love could shoot, right? <laughs> and back when back when the Spurs were closer to 100 percent healthy and and playing more with that, you know, battle where they're just grinding out these narrow wins even without Kawhi Leonard. That was even just like a couple weeks ago. Now the Warriors have separated from that. And when they narrow their rotation, when they start playing Durant and Steph Curry 39, 38 minutes instead of playing them 33, 34, it's going to make a massive difference. Yeah, I think we've we've really only tasted what Steph Curry can do. And we've seen what happens when he goes off. But I have a I have a bit of a, a a feeling that Stephen Curry might actually have a bounce back playoffs after the last two years. Everyone would put so much attention to him in the playoffs. Um, this year, you can't because of Kevin Durant. And I think that this is the year that Curry really shows from the beginning to the end that that he can be a playoff performer as long as he's not getting mauled by the other team's best defenders the whole game. That's what I'm really looking forward to is the scenario where that amazing five man unit is out there a whole lot more and you know you get to see how good this team really can be the two losses that they had in pretty close succession on christmas day and then i think it was first week of january to memphis have had some real ripple effects with figuring out that curry can be and needs to be more assertive and then trying some more stuff with their offense they've actually changed up their sub rotations as well and all of those elements have made the warriors better in the short term and probably in the long term as well, because it, as Draymond said, after the Memphis loss, it forced them to think about what they what they were kind of coasting on because they're so good that they were beating teams where they had these mistakes. You know, a lot was made at one point when Clay was leading the team in, in field goal attempts per game, and and obviously a large chunk of that is because the guy never gets to the line. So Curry and Durant, who were right there with him, actually were taking more shots. They were just getting fouled on some of them. Anyway, the big point is Clay shouldn't have been taking the most field goal attempts per game anyway. That was a product of it being so easy for them to set anyone up that they wanted to that they were just getting the ball to Clay. But I, I fully agree with the way they've been playing lately. I agree with your points. I think Stephen Curry is the, the trigger man. Kevin Durant is the, is the superstar who you find ways to get the ball. And you're going to see that in the playoffs. You're not going to see, other than probably like once per series, Clay will go off because he always does. Once per series, Clay will have the most field goal attempts. But I think in the other three, four, five games in every series that they play, Stefan and KD are going to have by far more shot attempts. The ball's going to be in their hands a lot more than it is Clay. And uh, that's going to be very obvious as to who the, how the, 
pecking order runs and that it's a clearly a two amazing superstar scorers and then this really great third scorer not three amazing superstar scorers with all due respect to clay i think that's fair and there will be circumstances because clay if the ball gets to him he's going to shoot it so if the ball just gets to him a couple more Which times is kind of the issue too it is but he's good enough in those opportunities that it's not catastrophic. You know, a lot of teams no, would be no, thrilled. No, it's, yeah, it's definitely not catastrophic. And don't get me wrong, Clay Thompson is a really, really good player. But, you know, his true shooting percentage is significantly lower. And he doesn't really do anything else other than shoot the ball when he gets it. If he's open at all, and it's within his very, very large range, he's probably taking the shot. And so, to me, like, the offense has to run through Stefan and Kevin. Because both of them make better decisions and make more varied decisions and make more dangerous decisions. Uh, and so it has to run through them. Once this season gets completed gets completed, and we see where it goes, I think it'll be very interesting to see if people start having the conversations about whether this team has either or the best second player on a team ever, the best third player on a team ever, or the best fourth best player on a team ever. Because I think they're in consideration for all of those when you consider the overall impact of each of those three guys. I love NBA history. You you, you know that, I'm sure. So I, I would say best second best player in the team, like the, the early 80s, like 82 Lakers, when Kareem and Magic very well might have been two of the three or four best players in the NBA. I'd probably put them over it. But let's be honest, Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant are going to go down as two of the 20 to 30 best players in NBA history. So we're not exactly bidding in the face of history in this way. Right. And those guys are both prime or real close to it. Yeah. And, th- and that's the other thing is their primes overlap. So Kareem was in his 30s and he was a, as good a 30-year-old basketball player as has ever existed. But he was in his 30s. Magic was still a little young. There's a reason Bird was better than Magic for the early parts of their careers. I think if you're really being honest, you'd probably say this is the first time that two of the three best players in the NBA have been on the same team. Unless you want to say, and I don't personally, that James Harden is better than Durant or, or Curry. He isn't. He's he's, he's, he's having a he's player. having a better he's having a better season, but that does not make him a better player. Yeah, right. A few guys are having better seasons than Curry. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're better players. Right. I think that's enough Warriors talk. About ten minutes. Let's so let's go to tier two, which is an issue of identi- I think identification more than ordering because at least you can say if you feel di- different. I don't focus as much on where teams are within the same tier, though I do generally have preferences. Yeah, my tier two is literally in my mind. It's called can beat the Warriors. <laughs> that's what I call tier two. Um, and so for me, it's the Spurs and the Cavs, and they're the only teams that. I think in a seven-game series, could could beat the Warriors. Yeah, I would call it more than puncher's chance because there are other teams that I think could, and there are actually some teams below this that I think would could have a better chance, but they need to prove it more. But they just haven't. Yeah, yet. yeah. I mean, and when that, you get into matchup stuff, like I'm sure you're talking about the Jazz, and I would too. When you get into matchup stuff, I just I tend to feel like. When we're talking about a team on the on the level of the Warriors, it comes down to more than matchups, and and a team like the Warriors just comes up with ways to to beat a matchup in a seven game series. Sure. So I think the matchup situation really matters more in the regular season when you don't have time to adjust and talent doesn't have a chance to prevail. I think when I say the Spurs and the Cavs, like I guess I mean they're the teams that really have this looks like an NBA championship caliber team if push comes to shove. Whereas I don't see any other teams belong in that tier of this looks like an NBA championship caliber team. 
I would have the, not that it makes a big difference, I just talked about this, but I would have the Cavs over the Spurs because I trust their high-end talent a little bit more. I trust their fit together a little bit more. And I I don't trust either team supporting guys in the higher strain of the playoffs. I think the Spurs guys are better, but I'm not sitting there going, oh, you know, Dwayne Dedman, Patty Mills, those guys are going to make the difference in a playoff series. They could, but I wouldn't expect it. You know, it's been great for the Spurs. You probably know because um, I like to tweak you on him. Is, is David Lee? David Lee's been great for the Spurs. Just tremendous yes. season. I mean, he's, he's making every shot he takes. He got the same true shooting percentage as Kawhi, and uh, you know he he's been fantastic. Patty Mills, I think, is clearly a better player than Tony Parker. But where I I sort of stand with the Spurs a little bit is the the the, the sort of Popovich factor, Parker factor, Ginobili factor. Can they put it all together at once? Can Tony Parker, who's missed a lot of games, like and Manu, who hasn't played a lot of minutes, can they be really fresh for the playoffs and come in and just remind us who they are again? And if that can happen, that's when I'm scared of the, of the Spurs. Right now, I think clearly a lineup where Patty Mills is the better point guard. Patty Mills isn't an ideal fit to be playing 30 minutes a game in, in uh, against the Warriors and the Cavs, but... The Spurs do have some pieces. They have some veterans. Pau Gasol is in this conversation. And, you know, they, they've got some veterans who maybe they can bring it up a level when it matters the most. And if anyone can make that happen, it's Greg Popovich. That's fair. I don't have too much of a disagreement with that. I just like the Cavs' talent better. But again, we're arguing within a tier, which is less interesting than arguing between them. So the next question along those same lines is, were there any teams right below that that you seriously considered for Tier 2? Yeah, I, I would say the Jazz and the Celtics to me are the, the, the top teams in Tier 3. As you might remember in that preseason pod, I, I picked the Celtics to pick to have the best record in the uh, in the Eastern Conference, and they're kind of on their way right now. They're, they're the hot team in the East as the Cavs are flailing, and they've already passed the Raptors, and I really like what they have when they're healthy. I really, I have always been a huge fan of Al Horford. I think he is a, uh, I'm talking, when I say always, I mean since, he was beating UCLA in the championship game in 2006, which I'm sure you watched. Wouldn't be a podcast with me if you if I didn't troll you on being a UCLA guy. I was uh, there. <laughs> I didn't watch it. I was there. <laughs> well, I have always – I in 2006, the first championship, I think it became popular in the second championship, but the very first Florida championship, I thought Horford was the best player on the team, and I still think – to this day, that Al Horford is an elite level big man, and, and he brings the Celtics up so many levels. So many people are worried about their rebounding, and rebounding sometimes just doesn't matter, and we have seen that play out. And then sometimes it kills you. So I think the Celtics are one move away, and if we all know Trader Danny, he's probably going to make a move. It may not be the move, but Lord, if they get Jimmy Butler, this team is for real. And if they get Jimmy Butler, to me, they move up to Tier 2 before even playing a game. I think the Jazz are probably the closest, and the reason for that is that they already have their talent on roster, so you don't have to buy into the the idea that they make a move to get better in the immediate. You know, if, if Utah gets healthy, I think they could. you can make an argument that they're in that mix. Boston, they have the pieces to do it, unquestionably. I mean, when you have two Brooklyn picks, each of which I would reasonably expect will be one of the, you know, one of the top three, I think is a fair, is a fair calibration at this point. And all of their other talent on reasonable contracts, they could do it. I'm not sure that they will, but they can. So yeah, I would agree with you that that they're 
at that point. And the other reason why is because as good as Toronto is as a regular season team, that we have already seen their problems against the best of the best and even teams that they don't match up well against in the playoffs. And while this, the Celtics have problems, I think that they might actually be a little bit more versatile just because they have so much defensive talent and their offense is questionable. I worry about how much Isaiah can thrive with the increased defensive pressure of a playoff series against good teams and the way that the game is officiated, but he's still awfully good. Yeah. And I think one thing that needs to be said about the Jazz, and the reason I actually, I'd also put them above the Celtics, is this team has has put together a really, really good season, and they haven't been healthy at all. They only have, Rudy Gobert is the only of their top six players, in a, or top five players, who has played all their games, and it's just like, it's, you're looking at this list, like Rodney Hood's missed a ton of time, Derek Favors has not only missed time, but never looked like himself. George Hill's missed a ton of time. Gordon Hayward missed some of the games that George Hill was healthy for. So you look at what this Jazz team has that they haven't even been able to show off, and there's so, so much talent. And And what I also like about the Jazz in the playoffs and when it matters is I really thought the additions of Boris Diaw and Joe Johnson were brilliant because these are minimal, no-risk type roles for these veterans that this team desperately needed last year. And I have a lot of faith in the Jazz. I, I really do think the Jazz are set to be an absolute force for as long as they can actually afford to keep this team together. We're recording this on Tuesday evening, so of course these numbers will hopefully change over the next couple of weeks. But the Jazz starting five, the five that we expected it to be, Hill, Rodney Hood, Gordon Hayward, Derek Favors, and Rudy Gobert, have played a total of nine minutes, to, uh, nine games together and 105 minutes. That is actually their most used five-man lineup is 105 minutes. There are teams that have just a ton more lineups than that. There are teams, I mean, even Portland starting five, and they've had guys out. I think they were at 286 bef- over the weekend. So that was long before this. Utah is in the process of, of getting there. And they also do have assets if they really wanted to. They have two first-round picks because they have their own and they have the Warriors, and they actually have cap space. I think they're going to use that cap space to renegotiate and extend one of their guys, whether it's George Hill or Derek Favors is an interesting question, but they can do that. And they are at the point where even though there is this chance that Gordon Hayward leaves this summer, they're good enough that they can't really, they can't, they can't protect themselves from that risk. They just have to deal with it. Unless somebody makes, unless Boston makes them a ridiculous offer, in which case maybe you think about it. Side, real quick side note on that. In a way, it would be almost genius to do it with favors because you could probably get him at a discount. And this is also important moving forward. Derek Favors has been a shell of himself all season. And he was arguably as good as Hayward up until this season. So we're talking about a guy who's 25 years old and could be, if he if he actually can get all of his health issues worked out, could be a real force in the playoffs and a complete difference maker next to Gobert or in behind Gobert at times whenever he's actually feeling like himself again. So the jet don't sleep on the jazz, but the other two teams that I had in, in tier three um, with them were the Raptors and, and the Clippers. And uh, I, I know that the Clippers are uh, the Clippers and it's such a weird thing to talk about them, but their starting five is so good that I think they have to be in this group or higher. I mean, they're not higher at this point, but they, they have to be in that group because when you're starting five is better than almost everybody else in the league. And 
depth matters a lot less. I have no problem with them being there at all. I have one additional team in this tier, and that's the Houston Rockets. The Rockets are, by my inclusion, the weakest team in terms of ceiling of this group, but they have the potential to be a great offense, which they already have been. And if they can be league average or better on defense, which they are at, usually at full strength, they're fine. You know, that like that puts them in this group. I have a, a, a question related to the, the Clippers that I'm, I'm very curious your answer on. I'm not even going to argue you because I don't know where I stand. Does a world in which all they have to give up is Austin Rivers and Jamal Crawford to get Carmelo Anthony, does that make them a tier two team or no? Probably not. Because yeah, they I, still I, I they still <laughs> can't they can't score or defend at the level of I would say either the Spurs or the Cavs at that point because Melo is wonderful in a very specific role and I haven't we basically I talked about this with Nate a little bit on Dunked On the bet with Melo on the Cavs or the Clippers is that in the NBA with the good enough surrounding talent he will play more like international FIBA Melo where he distributes more, he's he's more unselfish. And first of all, you're betting on that when we haven't really seen that in the NBA. And second of all, the three-point line is deeper. So his value drops in that way because he's pretty comfortable from the FIBA line and he's less comfortable from the NBA line. He's doing an okay job this year. And the other just huge component when you're dealing with the best of the best, which is what you're talking about if they're tier two, they still lack swingman defenders. The Spurs have an elite small forward. The Warriors have an elite small forward. The Jazz have a very, very good small forward who I, I think is a deserving all-star pick and, you know, all that. So Melo is is good. Melo is a very good player in the right role, but I don't think he cures what ails them. And he doesn't, he makes them harder to, to switch against, I guess, but he doesn't make them harder, that much harder to defend other than that. Yeah. Now you put the Rockets in this tier and I get it. And I know that they have been better than I expected and that the since Beverly came back, their defense has gone from god-awful to pretty solid. And, you know, the pace isn't as extreme as people are, are making it out to be. The three-point shooting is as extreme as people are making it out to be. They have a lineup that could produce a, a very realistic, usable five-man lineup that could have all guys who shoot 35%. Well, actually, James Harden would be the worst three-point shooter in there. And their uh, Harden, Ariza, Beverly, Gordon, Anderson lineup, if they ever choose to use that. So they have a fascinating team, and there's no doubt about that. I guess I'm just still kind of thinking, what is Eric Gordon? What is Ryan Anderson? What are any of these guys, other than Harden maybe, going to look like come the playoffs? I mean, these guys are playing a lot of minutes. They're playing Eric Gordon and, and Ryan Anderson, two of the most injury-prone players in the league, 30 minutes a game. And to me, that's just asking for a breakdown. Trevor Ariza, you know, he's 31 years old. He's playing 35 minutes a game and defending every team's best player. And he's had a great season, but how long can that last? And so I projecting forward, I have some worries, major worries about how the Rockets can sustain this. I haven't really ever thought of them that way because I think of it more from a talent perspective, but there is a reasonable concern there, especially with the way that D'Antoni rides his guys. That also ties in with this idea that I, I've been thinking about a little bit with the way they've been falling and with the way that the other part of the West is going. The best thing in many ways that could happen with them, other than potentially pulling up to the two seed if you think home court matters for them, which I don't think is going to happen, is being a little bit clearer of teams on both ends. Because then that last two weeks of the year, if they can take it off a little bit, give those guys some rest and really go into that first round series strong. 
Yeah, and that that gets to uh, a team that I put above the Rockets in Tier 4, um, and that's the Grizzlies. And I think that the Grizzlies, who are right now in the 7 seed, I could easily see them working their way up to the 6 seed. They're basically right there with the Thunder. To me, if the Rockets get the 3 seed or the 2 seed, they're still going to, either way, I think they're going to want to avoid the Grizzlies because the Grizzlies don't let teams run on them, and the Grizzlies do play really really good perimeter defense they don't the teams hate shooting three-pointers against them it's just the kind of matchup that D'Antoni as a coach has always struggled against and that's why I think I think for a lot of reasons I think the Grizzlies and the Jazz have this differentiated style that could cause some real problems for the Warriors or the you know anyone really but particularly the Warriors and particularly above all else the Rockets would have a lot of trouble with the Grizzlies or the Jazz and uh on top of that just what Marcus Hall and Mike Conley have been able to do at their ages, it's been amazing. It's been amazing to watch. They've had great, great seasons. Conley, it's arguably his best season. Gasol, it's probably top two or top three seasons for him. At the moment, I don't think there's a Western Conference first round series, emphasis on first round series, that I would like to see more than Grizzlies Rockets because it would be illuminating about both teams, not only their present, but their future. Because if Memphis can really put a charge in them or even win that series, then you start to think about how they age a little bit differently. And if the if the Rockets really struggle, then that's questions about their core. And if they win the series going away, then they're more versatile. And so all of that and how Marcus can handle a Harden, Capella, pick and roll, how well Jermichael Green can stay out on Ryan Anderson, all of those sorts of things, the benches would be great to see. I'm not as sold on Memphis for a couple different reasons. One is I don't trust their bench other than Zebo and even Zebo. He's, he can be exploited more than he is in the regular season once coaches figure out that make him defend in space and he can't really do a whole heck of a lot. But they're still quite good. I think that they're going to end up with the six seeds. So that would mean we would get the, I think that'll be the three six, which is what I want. The X factor for them. And this is exactly why I was supportive of the move at the time, despite the concerns about his injury history and present, was was Chandler Parsons, because Parsons gives them an offensive dynamism that they just don't have right now. And as they've gotten some nice performances out of Vince, out of James Ennis, but none of them are Chandler Parsons in that way. And so if they can get him, even if it's for 20 to 25 minutes a game, to be 85% of what he was for Dallas or Houston... That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I think Chandler Parsons joins Derek Favors as the the two guys who, if they just get back to the level they were at last year before the injuries really started taking tolls on them, and if they and if they continue to minimize their minutes played and their coaches do a good job of trying to keep them fresh to some degree, both of those guys could really take their teams up another level. But I agree, Parsons is even more important because of that differentiating factor that he gives. And uh, to, to James Ennis' credit, he's played really well. Jamichael Green's been a revelation, and I would be just as worried about Ryan Anderson getting out on Jamichael Green, who has uh, turned up his three-point shooting this year. And uh, I think that in a lot of ways, the Grizzlies have done exactly what they came into this season to do. And it's been a really, really interesting combination of they've kept that grit and grind identity. They've really improved their three-point shooting. They've done what they need to do, and now it's just a matter of let's see this roster actually be healthy and and and, and click in the ways that they, they've they set it up to in the off season. We probably won't talk about them much, but I think no matter what way we disagree on the Rockets, the Grizzlies and Thunder are both in this tier. But the more interesting element of this to me is 
since we're doing this with the conferences combined, what Eastern Conference teams make it in this tier and how do they fit in with the Grizzlies and Thunder? Yeah, we shouldn't even talk about the Thunder because Russell Westbrook is Russell Westbrook and that's that. I think that the Wizards have, in my opinion, the, the fourth best team in the Eastern Conference. I could argue that the Wizards might have the third or, you know, I I, th- I think third is probably as high as I go. The third best team because their starting lineup is incredible and their bench is no longer the worst thing. And, and, and that's the key, you know, leap for them was their bench was so awful for, for a large chunk of the season. It couldn't keep up with their starting lineup. But, you know, what we've seen now, Markeith Morris playing more competently, Otto Porter and Bradley Beal are continuing to grow. John Wall is making fewer mistakes, reducing his turnovers. Um, he had been trying to do too much, I think. Martin Gortat is one of the most underrated players of the last five years and never gets his credit and always puts up great numbers in every in every regard. Just as a whole, they're young bench players. Sadaransky and, you know, they're starting to find an identity there with their bench and that, that was really important for them. And I wouldn't want to see the, for the same reasons that we talked about the Clippers five-man lineup, I wouldn't want to see the Wizards in a, in a first round series or even a second round series. And the Cavs might find themselves up against a, a, a hot, really strong one through five Wizards team that has a competent enough bench. And that might not be what the, the Cavs really are, are, are looking forward to in, in round two. And uh, they're, to me, they're just a very dangerous team. You brought up the, t- the comparison that I was going to bring up, but I'll go at it in a little bit of a different angle, which is that perception is often a lagging indicator because players get better, players get worse, players get hurt, players get healthy. There are a lot of Clippersy elements in the Wizards. And the argument that, I mean, Chris Paul is, I would say, the best player on either team. And that makes a big difference. DeAndre is wonderful. It is in no way a a denigration of those guys to say that those teams are closer than many think. But the reason why I say perception is a lagging indicator is that there is a very real chance that over this time, the Clippers just are not as good as they were, as their ceiling the last couple of years. You know, they got hurt. They were victims of circumstance. And the Wizards have gotten a lot better because their guys were young. Their guys were raw. They're better coached now. So I still think the Clippers are better. I would have them in a separate tier, but that is a closer conversation than has been largely discussed, whether we're talking national basketball or basketball Twitter. Yeah, I would also like to add that uh, props to the Suns for basically handing Markeith Morris for nothing, just like they gave his brother away for nothing. Uh, well, it wasn't as much for nothing, but he's a better player than his brother. So Yeah, and they traded at the point of absolute weakness after setting themselves up for that point of absolute weakness. But That said, the Suns did a good job basically turning that pick and a few other small assets into Marquise Chris, who was a better player than would have been available at their slot. True, true. So yeah. I think... Um, okay, so where yeah, would you have the Wizards in relation to the Thunder? So I would say that I have the Wizards, the Thunder, and tentatively... I've had a hard time grasping their success, but I, I put the Hawks there, uh, mostly because I trust Paul Millsap more than anything. I think the Hawks have emerged as a team that's kind of hard to deny a spot roughly in this range because they've played so well and because Millsap's been so great. And Dwight's been a consistent, stabilizing, you know, big man presence who doesn't, who hasn't demanded the ball that much, hasn't had, hasn't ruined the team with his Dwight-isms, and uh, so I think that the Hawks have earned a spot, and Mike Buden, credit to Mike Budenholzer, again, another fantastic coaching job, another great defense that he's manning, so I think the Hawks have put themselves into that tier four, and I think 
if you were asking me, I'd put the Grizzlies and the Rockets at the front end of Tier 4, followed by the Wizards, the Thunder, and, and the Hawks in that order, but they're all pretty close. The Hawks, as presently constituted, make it into this tier, but the uncertainty is just has to be noted with the idea that there are so many other players that are free agents. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, there were the rumors about them being open to trading Paul Millsap, and if they go in that direction, they fall off, but that's a caveat we can put on a bunch of these teams. So they trade, I think they, they trade Paul Millsap, they're probably, given what they'd probably trade him for, which is future assets, if they trade Paul Millsap, they might fall down to tier seven. I mean, <laughs> I can't even over, I cannot overstate when people were talking about who's going to make the all-star team. And, you know, we were talking about, well, what, if, what about Embiid versus Millsap? And I'm like, Millsap's a lock, man. <laughs> what if what about he's been great Millsap is to me the number the clear cut number four eastern conference forward this year and last year he was the clear cut number two eastern conference forward and the problem is he doesn't put up great traditional numbers when you look at the the you know the first square on the beat on the basketball reference chart the per game numbers they don't blow you away and then you look at the advanced stuff and you actually watch him play and you see the you know the RPM and et cetera, and like you, it all fits, and you just realize this guy does everything, and that that team would probably fall apart without him. I have both the Wizards and the Hawks as presently constituted over the Thunder because the Thunder are so rust dependent. They're wonderful with that, but I I don't completely trust their defense yet, and I really really don't trust their offense. So it, but again, they're in the same tier. It's not that big a deal. That's just the way I have it. Yeah. Before we move on, I want to take a little bit bit of time to talk about Blue Apron, the amazing food delivery service. I have sung their praises for so long now, but it is for a very good reason, because I legitimately love their product. The last week, the thing that I made that really stood out, I actually talked about this on Dunked On, was some, they were, it was a chicken, I think it was hoisin chicken, and it was in buns with marinated carrots, and it was absolutely awesome. It was really tasty. I like that style of food as well. But it was something that I absolutely would not have made without Blue Apron. It's not something that's within my culinary comfort zones in terms of food preparation, certainly within them in terms of eating. And that is one of the great things that you can do with Blue Apron. There are many different options, but being able to broaden your cooking horizons is a great way of doing it. I've already kind of started thinking about if there would what would be necessary to do something like that again. And it is a lot of different positives. So if you like eating good food, it's a great way to do that. If you enjoy cooking good food with great instructions and excellent ingredients that are perfectly proportioned, it's it's awesome for that. And if you are somebody who likes things that are sustainably sourced. Blue Apron does an amazing job with that, especially with their seafood, which is not only tastes great, but is, is great for the environment. And I really appreciate, especially as the brother of a marine biologist, it's something that I care about. I've had a lot of great salmon dishes, shrimp dishes, so many other things from Blue Apron. If you want to check them out, you don't have to take my word for it. You can go to www.blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. And hopefully you will enjoy it as much as I do. I genuinely suspect that you do. It is an exciting thing to not only get the food, cook the food, eat the food, but also to figure out what you want to get. And I look forward to that whenever I get the opportunity and going through the whole calendar and everything that they have in front of them. And again, it's www.blueapron.com slash real GM. Tier five is a madhouse for me. Ugh. It's basically <laughs> tier five. Tier five is basically all of these teams that, you don't feel comfortable with 
but you feel more comfortable with than everyone else. So yeah, it's just like- it's really where it's really where you draw the queasiness line is to, is whether a team is tier five or below. I mean, tier five is one of those things where it's like it's this mix of teams that I think should be better and teams that I'm not sure how they are so good. Like I'm not sure why the Bulls have been so good. To me, everything about their chemistry is completely awful. But I guess they have talent. On the other hand, the Hornets, the Pistons, the Bucks to some degree. I expected more out of them. I really did, and I, I'm a little let down by uh, particularly the Pistons, who I had pretty high preseason hopes for. And those are all teams that I have in Tier 5. My Tier 5, like I said, is a, a madhouse. The Pacers, the Nuggets, the Blazers, the Timberwolves, the Pelicans, the Mavericks. Basically, Tier 5 is absolutely expect and are right to expect to make the playoffs. But I don't think they can do anything when they get there. That's a way of putting it. Mine is a little bit narrower, but that's just because there are some of these teams that I don't think have much of a chance of making the playoffs. And I, at this point, you know, you're you're not talking about teams that you expect to win a series or anything like that. Of this group, I think I trust the Hornets, the pa- and the Pacers the most. Both those teams have good talent. They've been successful with largely similar teams. I mean, the Pacers are different, but Paul George is there, so. Paul George is Paul George. The Hornets aren't that different from last year. They're a little bit worse from talent perspective, but Clifford's a hell of a coach. They do a good job. So you have those teams, and then I don't trust any of the remaining teams in the West, but I don't really trust any of the remaining teams in the East. So I would say then, so the Hornets and Pacers are kind of like the top of this tier, and then my next group still in this tier. Yeah, like 4.5 would be them. Then tier, tier 5 would be the Nuggets, the Blazers, the Bulls the Pistons, probably the Wolves and the Pelicans too. They're they're kind of on the shadow end of it. It's kind of, you know, you could that's another one you could make 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 that 5.5. But it's absolutely it, it's such an amazing idea that these teams are all so close and wondering what the differentiator is going to be because a lot basically, you know, you have all these other teams. So we have between the two of us, we have 12 teams that are in the first four tiers. So we're talking about the last two playoff spots in each conference, the last two teams in each play in each conference. I know it's seven and five, one team in the West, three teams in the East and presumable first round exits. So you can gun to be at the top of this tier, but there isn't really much of a point. No. And the only real hope is that you end up is that the Hawks trade Paul Millsap or Russ goes down for a month or something happens that lets you jump up into the, hey, we're in a winnable first round series. We're not facing the Warriors. We're not facing the Cavs. And uh, without that kind of, when I look at this group, what I think, what I'm part of my logic is one of the things I like about the Nuggets, the Timberwolves and the Bucks is with their young rosters, they're going to be absolutely desperate to make the playoffs, even if it's a horrible matchup and they're going to lose in the first round. They haven't made the playoffs. Well, the Bucks have, but the Bucks, it seems like forever ago, two years ago, because their whole identity is so different now. The Timberwolves desperately want to make the playoffs. The Kings, who aren't even in this tier for me because of a million reasons, the Kings desperately want to make this play this run, but it's not young players for them. What I like about the Timberwolves and the Nuggets is these are teams that have very restacked rosters that would gain a lot from making the playoffs and should probably be pretty fresh down the stretch. So to them, even though I don't have them at the top of the tier right now, I really do like them moving forward because I think 
The Timberwolves are only going to get better as the season goes on. Andrew Wiggins has, you know, stepped up his game. They've started to show some of the chemistry that was lacking. Thibodeau's starting to work his fundamentals in. And then the Nuggets, who have just constantly, I know you and I, you and I are two of the loudest people preaching about the Nuggets. And the Nuggets are good. The Nuggets have a decent young roster. They have a lot of assets. They have some veterans that teams might want. And they have, and those veterans also are guys that they might want. And I like what the Denver Nuggets have built. And I like the future of that team. But I also think, hey, they can make the playoffs this year. And that would be a good thing for their franchise. You know, I'm on board with the Nuggets. But at the same time, what might be best for their ceiling long term would be trading away some of those assets. And I don't know if they're comfortable with that because it's, you know, when you have the chance to be to make the playoffs when you're a young team and you think it's only going to get better from here. That's the same logic that led the Bucks down a little bit of a bad path a couple of years ago. But, you know, it reasonably ended up working out because Giannis became a superstar. And I still and think that's, the, that's kind of what the Nuggets have in Jokic is they can afford to keep Gallinari and Chandler because they're still hinging that on Jokic and possibly Moutier and maybe even Jamal Murray. You know, rookies are rookies, so don't ignore this season. But one of those three, at least, probably Jokic, becoming a superstar. And when you have a guy who you believe can become a superstar, just like the Pelicans did with Anthony Davis, it's not a bad thing to to surround them with stabilizing forces. That's what the Pelicans didn't do with Anthony Davis. And uh, the Pelicans surrounded Davis with these really volatile, injury-prone players. If the Nuggets can keep a guy like Danilo Gallinari or Wilson Chandler to help stabilize the growth of, of Nikola Jokic, that could be a good thing for the franchise. Along those same lines, they're too good, probably, to really fall that much if they traded those guys. Like, they would fall. They would probably, let's say they got to, like, the 10th worst record, which is certainly possible if they traded Gallo, if they traded Wilson Chandler, or whatever, they will Barton. They have a lot of guys that they could move, but they don't have to move. Whatever of those players that they that they lose, they're not so bad that I think they're going to fall really into the the lower tiers that we're going to talk about. It's possible, but unlikely, and they would have to put a more concerted effort. And considering all of their young guys, I wouldn't do that in the first place. You know, you're not going to start putting Jokic on a minutes limit just because you want to have a better draft pick. And if you're at the 10 spot or or worse in the draft, it's really not, it's not worth it in that range. So that that is not an argument to say they need to keep Gallo. It's just an argument that when when assessing the options, you need to be aware of that there's there's probably a ceiling on how much better they can make their pick. Yeah. And again, I mean, if Jokic, another thing here is if they traded away Fareed, for instance, that opens up more minutes for Jokic and then they end up better because, quite frankly, he's only playing 26 minutes. If he was playing 32, they'd probably have a couple more wins. Um, that's how good he is. It's one of those situations where I think that the best thing for them to do right now is to try to stabilize the franchise, build around Jokic, hope that Moutier and Murray and or Murray become the guys to complement him, keep a Gary Harris around, keep uh, Hernan Gomez. They they have so many good assets, good young players, even Kenneth Fareed, who, you know, has had a bounce back season. They have the pieces there. Everyone's 30 or under other than Jameer Nelson. There's, There's no reason that they can't bring this unit back next year and be in the mix for a six seed or a five seed, which is, I think, ahead of what a lot of people thought their schedule was two years ago. 
at the same time, I there is always that degree of, of caution that you want to exhibit when a young team outperforms expectations a little bit, because sometimes, while it's not necessarily a full false start, it can be another year before they figured out the Jazz are a great example of this. Like Utah this year is what a lot of us hoped they were going to be last year. And some of that is that their point guard situation actually worked out as opposed to getting totally decimated by that last year. If they had had even a, a decent record in close games, they would have been a lot better. They would have made the playoffs. There is that challenge. Back to the show in in a little bit, but I want to take a moment to tell you about a product that I am a user of almost every single day, and that is Audible. When you talk about the idea that they could be the five or six seed next year, the West is going to be really strong. And I assume that at some point in the next year and a half, Portland's going to figure it out. I don't know if it's going to be this year. I have them as the favorites for the eight seed because I think they're the best team. But each day that they aren't showing that, I get more concerned. Yeah, I don't see it with Portland. And I never saw it with Portland. So maybe I'm just a hater, but I really like Damian Lillard. I really like CJ McCollum. I don't like them together. And I hate their front court. They have the league's most boring front court possible. Just a whole bunch of guys who would be really good third big men. And as a result, I guess to me, I'd be if I'm the Nuggets, I'm way more worried about the Timberwolves. I'm way more worried about the day the Pelicans figure out how to surround Davis. I just I have a hard time imagining that the, the the Blazers, who have left themselves no room to grow, no room to improve, will just out of natural cause. I mean, we didn't really see enough from Alan Crabb to justify that contract. We didn't for the Nets that made sense, but for the Blazers, who were not going to be able to make him a starter. I'm not sure that did make sense. And and uh, a lot of the guys that we wanted to, it's sort of like the magic where we were imposing high upside on players who we never really thought until a push came to shove did have high upside. And uh, in that way, I see some similarities to the magic, except that they have Damian Lillard and the magic desperately, desperately need a Damian Lillard. <laughs> but beyond that, you know, there's just some major holes in that, in that blazer lineup to me. Similarly, there is a, a peril that we get into sometimes when we start to conflate a player being a good value and being impressive with them being very good. And I think we're hitting that point with Alfaruk Aminu. I like Aminu a lot. I think that he is on a wonderful contract. He has been a great surprise both at the end of his Dallas career and at the in his Portland career. But I'm going to go through his three-point shooting percentages for the last five years. <laughs> going from earliest to now. 21.1. 27.1, 27.4, 36.1, 26.2. Yeah, I like Harkless more. I no do too. Question to me. Well, Hark- Harkless has a clear-cut spot. You know, it's like you put him at the three, have him defend good guys, have him fight. Sometimes maybe you dance him at the four, depending on who you have. That's fine. Aminu is a is a good player, and I like him. I th- again, he you could make an argument, and I think I probably at this point I'm getting closer to it that he's better as a third big than a second. And he's paid like a second or he's paid like a third or fourth. So that's fine, you know, like on that ground. But as you said, they've given themselves very limited space to improve and they need to add so much on top of it. And what frustrates me more than anything with Portland, and they did take a swipe at this with Festus Zeli. It didn't work out. I don't blame them too much for that. I I also didn't see his knee. I, I don't know how to read his knee results. I didn't see them, but it was abundantly clear when they had all the success last year with Lillard and CJ, and I think they're having, those two guys are having a good year. I mean, CJ's CJ's improved. He's a fringe all-star contender. I think he's had a nice year. 
you can't really manufacture that kind of an impact another way. So if you take that as an understanding and say, okay, you know, these are two really good offensive players. Maybe we stagger them. Maybe we don't. But in order to be anything, to, to maximize them, the most obvious thing that you need is a defensive center. That, they went into the offseason with that as their biggest need, and they tried a couple different guys. You know, it sounds like they tried Hassan Whiteside. Maybe they tried Dwight Howard. Those guys said no. And then they went, meh, and just gave up on it. And if it's your biggest need, try more things. And that's why I think they have to do that at the deadline, because otherwise they're locking in on a team that isn't that good. Yeah. Well, they locked in on it when they signed Evan Turner, gave Crab that extension. I well, I think, think so. Here, here, here's how I disagree. If they, let's say they theoretically could put together a trade for Nerlens, for Nerlens Noel, I think that fundamentally changes their ceiling. It doesn't guarantee it. It doesn't really even raise their floor, but it raises their ceiling. The other, the, the other factor is they kind of gambled that the fifty forty ninety version of Myers Leonard was a real thing, and that hasn't panned out either. But a lot of things. I mean, Noah Vonley has been a complete disaster for them, and they probably would have not spent that money on Evan Turner if they had Nick Batum, and that, they'd be a lot better with Nick Batum than Evan Turner. But Nick Batum uh, probably would have left. So I, I'm not I mean, as big on probably, that, though. You could say the return on that isn't great. Also, they've marginalized Ed Davis. I, don't, I think Ed Davis is significantly better than Noah Vonley right now. And they, they, oh, yeah, they're, 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 they're kind of trying to make fetch happen with Noah Vonley, and I understand why, because they don't have that many lottery tickets. But... When you're also trying to make the playoffs, I don't think it's worth it, especially considering how bad Vonley has been relative to what they need. You know, he's not a terrible player, but when they've been starting him, close. <laughs> when they've been starting him, he doesn't bring a lot to the table. You don't have to worry that much about defending him. He can get some get you some offensive rebounds. He's not versatile enough defensively. So they're trying to do a couple different things at once, and not all of them make sense. But at the same point, they're still this tier. To me, they're still towards the top of this tier because there are a couple teams here, the Pacers being the most obvious, that have all-star talent. None of them, other than the Blazers, have two guys that I would say are all-star talents right now. That's fair. Moving on to tier six, I'm actually going to drop, I dropped the Mavericks, Kings, Heat, and Knicks into tier six. And I don't even know what I want to say about those teams, except that the Mavericks are showing signs of life. Dirt's, and so are the Heat. The Heat have won eight straight. Yeah, and the Heat too. And, and the Kings have at various points showed signs of life and the Knicks have too. But And everyone wants to imagine that, especially those four teams with their veterans and their, their names, their name recognition factor that like, oh, you don't want to run into them in the playoffs. Like, I think the Cavs and the Warriors would love to run into those teams in the playoffs. <laughs> I think those are the, I think if they could pick who gets the eighth seed in their conferences, the Cavs and Warriors would absolutely be picking one of those four, one of those two teams in each conference. Uh, Lord knows the Cavs would love to play the Knicks in the first round. Yeah, they certainly would. <laughs> and I would, so mine, and this is probably going to be, going to be controversial for some people i have the sixers in this tier as well i fully believe that they that if that you can kind of salt away a lot of that early beginning of the season when they were figuring a lot of stuff out they were dealing with injuries as as being non-representative what they're doing right now is not fully representative either they've been killing it especially when Embiid's been healthy but i think this is far closer to what they really are than that was and while they have this kind of sunk sunk damage of losing a bunch of games early in the season at this moment they are two games behind the knicks i think that there's a very reasonable argument to be made that they are better than the knicks moving forward so to oh, yeah, me, that puts absolutely. them in. 
Absolutely. And I think that if you could imagine a world where Joel Embiid can play 32 minutes a game, I think they if, if, if he could just play every game for the rest of the season, 32 minutes a game, I'd put them at the eighth seed. That doesn't seem to be the case. But if there was a scenario in which I could guarantee that Joel Embiid would stay healthy and play 32 minutes for the next eight game for the net for the rest of the season, that's that's where I'd have him. I'd have him at the eighth seed, maybe even the seventh seed because there's that good when he plays. But his recent injury just general worry about him plus the uncertainty Ben Simmons and just the fact that the Sixers are still building towards something and that's why I put in my tier seven I put the Lakers the Suns the Sixers and the Magic and those are all teams that I think are still building towards something it's not exactly tanking because the Lakers may not be able to keep their pick although I'm sure that they would love to stay within range of winning the lottery but it's it's something similar to tanking where they're still building towards something. They're still going to experiment with things. They're still going to ultimately have their eye on 2019, 2020. And, and, and that's not a bad thing for those four franchises where they are. Other than the fact that the Magic seem to actually have believed for Lord knows what reason that they were, that they were done with that uh, entering this season. And that was not the case. So I talked before about how I have the Sixers in Tier 6. I have the Magic there too. And the logic is, if they go for it, could they be good enough? And I do not think the Lakers and Suns, even if they pushed, even if they did everything in their power, and the Suns have been feistier the last couple last couple weeks, and I've been excited about that. They've been competitive. They've won some games. They've also lost some games close. But both of them are in the spot where I, I don't see a reasonable path for them to even like sniff the playoffs. And so that makes them tier seven. The Sixers and Magic, outside, outside, outside shot. And that's really where I would have Miami as well. Like that's I think those teams are all analogous. The Knicks and the Kings are a little bit better than those than those squads, but they're not good enough to be tier five. So I think that's why my tier six is the way it is. So I would have the Kings and the Knicks at kind of the top of it, and then have the Heat, the Sixers, and the Magic as better than basically they're in tier six because they're better than tier seven. Right. And the Magic are, um, I guess for me, I broke tier six. Tier six is a whole bunch of teams that expect, that think that they're better than they are. And tier seven is a whole bunch of teams that are looking forward to the future and willing to willing to take an L here and there if it if it's required. But the Magic are the team that sort of isn't sure which of those tiers to go into. And the latest rumors that pretty much, lit, when I say pretty much, I mean literally everyone is on the table. I don't, I think the Magic gets kind of, picked apart they have a whole bunch of guys who would be really nice bench players or really nice fifth best starters including by the way Serge Ibaka who has not met the lofty expectations of trading Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis for him I think that the Magic are just in a position where they should be sellers and that's kind of what I really meant with the tier seven was these teams should be sellers every one of those teams has a couple veterans except for the Sixers that that they should sell that they should move on from and you know it would be the Lakers could get some pretty good value for Lou Williams if they can find the right team the Suns have eight or eight or nine guys if they can if the Suns can get someone to take Tyson Chandler's contract they need to do that but Tyson Chandler is actually pretty good so maybe they don't have to give him up for absolutely nothing that's sort of where I stand as we approach this trade deadline I think it's really important for those teams to just be realistic and the Magic have I've said this before the Magic in the draft over the last of the Rob Hennigan era have seemed to desperately avoid the whole lottery ticket concept, the whole swing for the fences. They've drafted some really safe players other than Mario Hazonia, who hasn't worked out so far. And I think it's time that they just take a big risk and use some of the, the players who are established, a Nick Vucevic, a, a Serge Ibaka, 
maybe even an Evan Fournier, if, if, if they can find someone who gives the right amount for him, to take a risk and try to be great because it isn't working for them right now and they don't have much upside and they're trying to build for the future, but they don't even know what that future means. They would be very fortunate if they could fall into that. Basically, if they could get a pick six or better, it just so happens that a lot of the players in that area would help them a lot. A bunch of point guards, which are very useful. And then when Alfred Payton's your point guard, yeah. Yeah, just a bunch of (laughs) a bunch of other talent. You know, like I I would say, even though it's not a perfect fit, Isaac or Tatum could work within what they're doing. Nobody on the magic is so good that you reject taking the best available player because they are there. And they're stacked at center. There are no centers. So good luck. You know, you you can make it work with a lot of other different configurations of talent. And how glad are you that this draft doesn't have centers? We have too many centers in the league now. We have so I'm many. I'm sad it doesn't have elite centers, but I'm happy it doesn't have those, like, the the guys who get drafted, centers who get drafted, except if they fall. Like, I had Steven Adams second in the class when he went 10th. So he is the exception to this. I hate drafts that have centers in the 8 to 12 range because those guys just generally don't work out. Where it's, you know, Alex Len is kind of like this, though he went higher, where you have to sell yourself on them like, oh man, like they could do that. And one of my great hopes with the league as it's going right now is that teams stop doing that as much because if you have to sell yourself on a seven footer, you probably shouldn't. Yeah. The, and you can the, find those guys. You can find uh, Jokic in the second round instead of taking Gorgie Jang. And then paying Gorgie Jang a ton of money. I think Gorgie Jang is a completely competent NBA player, a perfect backup center slash you know, I guess they they tried to make him a starting power forward. But, you know, Gorgie Jang is a fine player, but we have so many of him. They're all over the place. There's so many competent level centers, and that's why no one can trade them. Um, and as you've written in the past uh, for Sporting News, and so it's just a situation where I, I am glad to see a, a draft class that seems almost completely depleted in the center position because the NBA now has something like probably around 40 competent centers, 40 guys who are Gorgie Jang or better that you wouldn't mind starting at center for you. And there's only 30 teams and center is an increasingly irrelevant position. So it's this weird situation that we got ourselves into where we went to small ball and now have all these big guys and kind of leads right into tier eight, which is the Brooklyn Nets alone with their center, who is also alone. He is very alone. (laughs) And the Nets have probably, well, not probably, they almost definitely waited too long with him, just with the sense that he, the league moved past them with no fault of their own. That's just the way that it works out sometimes. And the Nets would look a lot better. I got into this argument with James Olus on Twitter a little bit over the week, where James we're talking about- argued on Twitter. Where we basically, my point, because I was saying something about how the Nets, you know, the Nets were really hurt by Jeremy Lin. He's like, oh, they still would have sucked. And I'm like, yeah, they still would have been bad, but they would have been closer to everyone else. And the gap is what's so concerning. I think the gap doesn't exist if Vasquez and or Lin is a lot healthier. You know, like Vasquez is basically was an entire sunk cost so badly that they cut him early in the year, despite having no guys because they knew he was going to be hurt. They needed to, to try to find players that fit. The Nets are distinct among this because they're bad and hopeless, which is a shame. (laughs) But they have young guys that are intriguing. But the pathway for them to be a playoff team is basically just suck for four years. You know, like that that's a very different thing 
the Kings are probably next in this group, but the Kings have DeMarcus Cousins, who's younger than Brooke Lopez and more intriguing than Brooke Lopez, even if he's not that much better than Brooke Lopez. Yeah. You know, the other thing I would say is a weird thing about that, the Nets young guy is, you know, okay, obviously RHJ is, is, is the number one guy you're talking about, but most of these young guys are old. I mean, Bojan Bogdanovic is 27. Sean well, Vert's, Patrick, Vert's pretty young, isn't he? Yeah, he's 22. But, I mean, he's also coming off an injury in college, a, season, a horrible season-ending injury. So, you know, Sean Kilpatrick, who they pulled out of the dust and might actually have some trade value at some point, he's 27. You know, they, they don't have – I love Trevor Trevor Booker, and I'm so glad he's gotten a chance to start and prove that he's a pretty pretty good NBA player. But he's 29. You know, he's getting his first stop. Lynn's 28. Lopez is 28. So you have this team that's just – they don't have much in the way of, yes, other than Rondé, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is the only guy on this team who I think they could pinpoint and say, we hope that he's still starting for us when we're good again. And that's a pretty depressing spot to be in. But that's why they're alone in, in Tier 8, and that's why Brooke Lopez probably feels alone as, quite bluntly, the only starter caliber NBA player on this team. We'll talk a little bit just because you and I are so fascinated with it about the trade deadline. This is going to be the last tiers podcast I do before it. Are there any particular like fits or players that you are singling out as like, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I want to see happen. I really want the Nets, the, the Celtics to make a trade. The Celtics have just sat on their hands with these Nets picks. They can do that. They could go through the next three years and just keep the Nets picks and and pick really good players and they might be amazing but I don't even care who they they do at this point but I'd like to see the Celtics just move something and do something so we can get this boulder off our backs of every trade deadline having to talk about them the most but other than that I'd like to see the Pacers try to get something for Monte Ellis I was just thinking about was it I, I was just playing with the trade machine seeing if there was any way to get Monte Ellis to the Cavs because that would be so fun but you know I think that that was one that that's that's hit me recently, and I think they they just don't know exactly who that for that fifth starter is next to George Teague Young and Turner. So if the sell if the Pacers want to be a real playoff team, I think they need they need some answers there. And the trade deadline's always so weird and always unpredictable, and it ends up being a lot of mid tier players who get traded. But there's a lot a lot of players who have very movable contracts in the salary in the salary world that we live in, and uh, where so many players are still on contracts from a $56 million cap that makes them super movable. And I'd just like to see some creativity and some fun from the GMs. I want to see some teams realize that even if they, even if they push for the eight seed, it's not worth it for them that they can, that they can kind of move around and get out of it and, and make some trades. The situation that I find the most compelling is the Hawks because Paul Millsap is a spectacular player and they should have a lot of information about him and what he wants. And I would be having a very frank conversation with him, basically saying, you know, this is what we're willing to offer you. And if it were me, you know, depending on how they see it, you know, whether that's five-year max, whether that's less than that, and basically saying, we can't agree to this now, but is that enough for you? And if he says no, then you have to trade him. Because yeah. letting him, uh, letting another guy go for nothing it completely just wrecks their franchise because they still have Dwight Howard. They still have a good coach. They're probably too good to be terrible. And Dwight Howard's going to age and said, so maybe you trade him and get into that. And Paul Millsap's a wonderful player. You could get something nice for him. So working that out, getting that sort of information, 
Nerlens, I've been a believer in him forever. I genuinely think that the Sixers should not trade him unless they get a great offer. But there are teams that should consider making him a making a great offer. With the Blazers being the most obvious, the the it's never ever going to happen. But the pet thing that's been running around my brain for the last week is trying to figure out a way for the Celtics to end up with. I mean, the the best path for them would be to end up with one of Butler, Gordon Hayward, or Paul George. But absent that, the crazy idea of how to build their team would be if they could somehow end up with whether it includes Horford or not, ending up with Nerlens and Paul Millsap and just basically saying, we're just going to kill everybody and we're just going to make every series nasty. It'd be just so much fun. I don't, I think it's off the table now that he signed that extension, but I've always thought that the most fun scenario for the Celtics would have been Russell Westbrook and giving up Isaiah Thomas and the Nets pick and maybe something and probably something else, maybe Jalen Brown and going after Russell Westbrook. And I still think next year that might be on the table. But uh, that aside, I think Jimmy Butler, I, I don't know what the, even Dwayne Wade, maybe Dwayne Wade on the Celtics would be a good fit, or maybe Dwayne Wade on just about anywhere. I mean, the Bulls need to make some moves after the last week, and they can't possibly think that they have a team that can win a playoff series right now when they're well, going to be Wade, in the I think what, what they have to do with Wade is see what he wants. I think that just for the legacy of their brand and, and everything else, they if he says he wants to go somewhere else, then you make that happen. If he says he wants to stay, then you let him ride it out and, and probably buy out Rondo because there's nothing else to do. Right. There's nothing to do with Rondo except buy him out. And that's... But I that's wanted just... to go back to Russ because you brought him up and I haven't talked about this enough, but... The the decision he made on his extension was exactly the right move for him. He got paid a lot more. It ties in his free agency with with when he's going to be when he's going to hit that ten year mark. And yes, it's true that the the supermax could get him there earlier, but he didn't know that at the time. They weren't all the way there. And anyway, it didn't it didn't really take him out of any conversations. He needs to really think about either it's going to be now or because he is they apparently grandfathered him in i haven't read this part of the cba yet but i'm, I'm confident in there because it was reported that he's grandfathered into this extension if he wants to do it he needs to think a lot about what he wants for the next three to five years of his life because if he wants to be the guy in oklahoma city on a team that is fringe playoffs and he's a fringe mvp candidate going after it every night putting up crazy stats that off, that door is open for him. That door is open for him for basically the rest of his prime. But if he wants something else, he is probably going to have to make that decision exceedingly quickly because even though the designated player option is not on the table for anybody else, he can go wherever he wants because teams are going to be interested in him. And he just has to, you know, Durant made the decision for what he wanted for the rest of his basketball life. And Westbrook has to do the same. Yeah, and I think... That's what I've been. That's what I've been saying since the day he signed that extension. Was this just delays it one year? This doesn't mean all that much for Oklahoma City. They've got to turn this team around. I will say, I like I predicted, Oladipo has had a really good year. You know, a lot of people were way too down on him, in my opinion. But they're going to need something out of Sabonis, if especially if they're going to keep him as their starter. Uh, it'd be great if Jeremy Grant turned into something good, but they need to make Russell Westbrook by this time next year. They need Russell Westbrook to be committing because the last thing they can do is set themselves up for Kevin Durant 2.0 that just happens to be two years later instead of one year later. And the last thing I think, I think at this time next year, if things haven't improved and Russell Westbrook is still averaging 30, 10 and 10, he might be drained 
or he might love it. And that's he keeps that sort of emotion and his personal feelings close to the vest. But it'll be very interesting and very important for the Thunder to figure out what his intentions are and for us to figure out what his intentions are. And he is he hangs over this league because he's such a unique talent, such a phenomenal talent. And also because he seems like the guy who, to a lot of us, I guess, and this is no slight to Oklahoma City, who maybe should want to, to consider his options more and, and should be thinking about it. And that's just the reality of the situation where you have this huge name player from Los Angeles who is in this on this team where he has to literally do everything. It's it's pretty hard to not feel like Russ should be at least thinking about other options. And that's why we always we're going to keep talking about him for another year plus. I said, which was silly at the time considering how close they got last year, but I said last year that part of the logic, and you were the one who edited the Durant piece, but the the part of my logic for why I thought it was reasonable was the idea that Durant could end his career as the best player to never win a championship. And that probably won't happen now. I mean, whether it's this year or the next couple years, probably will not be in that conversation. Russell Westbrook He's working his way into replacing Kevin Durant in that conversation should he choose to stay no, in it. No, because he's not as good as Carl Malone. See, I think... To, okay, here, <laughs> that's, here's, that's the reason. <laughs> it's not because he won't win a championship. It's because he's not as good as Carl Malone. <laughs> so that you're getting into an interesting point, which is that for me, Durant, if he had... If he had not won a championship, and we, he still hasn't, obviously, but if he if yeah. he stays in that, he's better. Like Durant is, he he's better. Better, better Russ, better twenties. He would have had to age well because Malone aged like no player. I, I, I don't, I don't care as much about that. For me, it's more about prime. Durant in his prime is yeah, better but Malone, Malone was winning MVPs in his thirties. <laughs> so, whether whether he know. deserved it or not. Once, and, once deserved it, once didn't. But yeah, no, I know what you're saying, and I think that for Durant, there's a you know, and then the stigma of being the best not to win it is very different than being. It's very different being Carl Malone than being Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing doesn't get that held over his head that much. It comes up. Only, it's only in certain places, but that's a little bit yeah, different, right? And, and so, it, at this point, I would say that conversation, and, and you can have an ordering within it, is probably of the more recent vintage, so 80s and beyond, is Chuck Malone, and then if he goes that far, West, Russell Westbrook. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd put, Bark- I'd, I'd put Barkley below Malone, clearly, but yeah, I'd say that's the main thing. I mean, Elgin Baylor sort of won a championship in that he played a couple games for a team that won a championship, but usually he gets lumped into that, that conversation too. Beyond that, you're really, you really are mostly talking about the recent guys because so many legends from earlier eras did win a championship or two so it's uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of guys from this era that unless they follow Durant's lead are going to be in this conversation at least when they turn 30 whether that I mean they could go the Elgin Baylor route and end up end up winning one a little bit later that they didn't play very much in but you know Anthony Davis could be in that conversation in a couple of years all that sort of stuff yep so I think I think Westbrook's like 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 we said he's in a very important next year the next 365 days because at this time next year the thunder really 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 need to make sure they know they know where he's headed they cannot afford to possibly risk another kevin durant situation we talked about it a little earlier with Millsap. it's true so much more with westbrook considering everything else and considering how the the differences in those circumstances yeah devastating to the franchise anything else you think we should discuss no no just that i miss editing your stuff danny I miss it too, but uh, lots, lots, go, lots going on. So congratulations on everything, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Yep, I will talk, I will talk soon. 
Thanks again to Adi Joseph for taking the time to come on. He is the deputy editor of For the Win, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Adi Joseph. That's A D I J O S E P H. I really did enjoy doing the full league version of Tears. It was a new challenge. I didn't know about it until right before we did it, but it was relatively clear in terms of how to figure it out. So I, I enjoyed the challenge of it and always love talking with Adi. Miss having him as my editor, but still, of course, really enjoy communicating with him, talking with him on the podcast. And we'll do probably two more of these, one at the beginning of March, one at the beginning of April. I don't think there's really a point in doing a tears podcast once we get into the playoffs. There's plenty more to talk about. So that is the tentative plan. I do really enjoy doing them as a way of thinking about the entire league. So I'll keep doing them because I want to keep doing them. Lots going on for Real Jam Radio. Going to keep trekking along through this month. Trade deadline is obviously looming large. Audi and I talked about it a little bit. So have various guests kind of do a mix like I've done of general NBA, specific topics, and then single teams, depending on what comes up and who wants to come on the show. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. It really is important, especially for a more weekly show like this. It's important for a daily show as well, but it's it's definitely important for a weekly show. And you can also leave a rating, leave a review in whatever podcast player you use. Really do appreciate that. And you can also support our sponsors. It's a, It might be the best way of supporting any show, but especially this one. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm, try out the amazing food delivery service. People who've listened to the show for a while know how big a fan I am of it. And you get three meals for free, including free shipping, blueapron.com slash realgm. And then Audible. Audible is, I'm just a huge fan of their product. I've been using it for years now, I believe, and gotten more into it as I've done more driving over the last little while and listening to full audiobooks. I, I'm still going through the Bruce Springsteen one. I think it's 18 hours. So there's plenty of material there. And that's audible.com slash try now to get your free trial. And again, that's www.audible.com slash try now. Also, you could check us out on the CLNS radio app. We are a member of the CLNS family. I've really enjoyed that. It is a growing family, which I'm incredibly excited about. And they have their own app, and so you can listen to this podcast and many others. That is one way that you can listen to this and definitely one we're checking out. And I'll be back at some point next week. Don't know exactly where I'm going to go with it yet, but I'm sure it'll be enjoyable. And thanks so much for coming along for the ride now and moving forward, hopefully. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank mm-hmm. you.